Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I have a very good understanding of who I am and what I am trying to do for our country in leading 260,000 people in the Department of Homeland Security. When Alejandro Mayorkas was tapped to run DHS, the now 20-year-old behemoth, Mayorkas said that he was determined to be the Secretary of Homeland Security, not the Secretary of Immigration. Well, how's that going? He's our guest this week, and we're going to ask him. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Mayorkas oversees a sprawling department that famously includes a lot of large federal entities that don't always seem to have a lot to do with each other. The Department of Homeland Security includes the Secret Service and FEMA, as well as the Coast Guard and TSA. Mayorkas' department is charged with preventing foreign and domestic terrorist attacks. It monitors threats from weapons of mass destruction, protects infrastructure, and ensures we're safe from cyber attacks. What many of DHS's agencies do have in common is that you often don't hear much about them unless something really bad has happened. So even if Mayorkas didn't also oversee immigration, the most fraught of political issues, being DHS secretary, responsible for defending the nation against terrorism, computer hackers, nuclear weapons, and natural disasters, can often be a thankless job. And despite his best attempts, it is Mayorkas's management of Border Patrol, ICE, and Immigration Services that has dominated his tenure and made him the GOP's main target of attack in the Biden cabinet. This week, House Republicans inched a step closer to impeaching him. The House Homeland Security Committee issued a report accusing him of, quote, dereliction of duty. Next week, on July 26th, Mayorkas will appear before Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee. You can expect a ruckus. Ale Mayorkas is the first Latino and the first immigrant to serve as Secretary of Homeland Security. His family fled Cuba when he was a one-year-old. He spent 30 years in law enforcement, including as U.S. Attorney from Southern California, has worked as a lawyer in the private sector, and served as a senior official at DHS for the entirety of the Obama administration. I caught up with Secretary Mayorkas in Colorado at the Aspen Security Forum, the annual gathering of top foreign policy officials. We discussed how the terrorism threat has changed over the last two decades, the challenges of confronting domestic extremism, what we know about the recent Chinese cyber attack against the federal government, why the end of Title 42 didn't lead to the border surge many predicted, whether there's a future where we get through the airport unmolested by TSA agents, the fentanyl crisis, the prospects of impeachment, and how going through the meat grinder of D.C. politics has changed him. Let's start with the hard stuff first. Okay. <laughs> the, the stuff that's not as fun and you probably don't want to talk about as much. But let's just do that early in the interview, get it out of the way. There's a lot of hard stuff to talk about. 
Yeah, there, there is. And I know this quote keeps coming up, but it, it seems very relevant that when you started this job, you said you wanted to be Secretary of Homeland Security, not Secretary of Immigration. If I was being kind of a wise ass, I would say, you know, how's that going? Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's like that line in The Godfather. It's like, you know, <laughs> just when I think I'm out, they drag me back in. Last night, the House Republicans, the Homeland Security Committee, issued this report accusing you of dereliction of duty. Next week, you're going up for one of, I'm sure, your favorite parts of this job to appear before Jim Jordan's committee. All of it is about immigration. So a couple questions on this, but I just want to start sort of personally and from a policy perspective. How have you dealt with the fact that you have not been able to become the Secretary of Homeland Security because essentially the political opposition keeps dragging you into the mire of immigration? A couple of thoughts. First of all- There's a lot there to unpack. Yeah, yeah, but let me start by saying something unequivocally. I am the Secretary of Homeland Security. And our mission set is a very diverse and sweeping one. And we do so much in so many different areas. And I'm proud to lead the department in each and every one of those areas. There's a distinction between whether I am the Secretary of Homeland Security and then whether an issue within our sweeping portfolio is capturing more attention than others, whether that's um, in Congress or in the eyes of the American public. I well understand why the level of migration that we've been experiencing at our southern border has in fact captured a lot of attention. It's captured a great deal of my attention and the department's attention. What we are experiencing at the southern border is an element of a sweeping level of migration across the hemisphere in the world. It deserves and needs attention and we're focused on it and we're also focused on everything else our department does. We hear so much about the problems at the border from the right, I think, because it's such a a polarizing issue and maybe a a beneficial political issue. Give us a sort of, you know, overview from your perspective about the challenges and successes that you feel like the Biden administration has had with respect to immigration so far. Let me start with the biggest challenge and then roll into a very significant success. Uh, Significant challenge, we're dealing with a broken system. And everyone agrees on that. And yet we cannot cross the finish line of fixing it. It is a sad chapter of governance for our country. And we see other countries maximizing the benefits of immigration and minimizing the challenges of it through nimble processes and programs. What's, who's a model? Take a look at Canada. Canada, uh, when it comes to the value of immigrants yeah. and their contributions to the economy, Canada calibrates its level of migration in a year according to its market needs. We've got these so numeric, every year they sort of... I don't know if it's every year or, if it's, or every other year, but it's... Their migration level of skilled or or low-wage workers is tied to their market needs. They have a system like that. We have 
caps. We have limits, numeric limits that have been um, set years and years ago. We have 10 million vacant jobs in the United States. There's a tremendous supply of labor that could boost our economy, and yet we can't marry the two. That is the greatest challenge that we're facing. When we talk about success, Everybody thought that it was going to be a calamity once the right. public health Title 42 authority ended. I want to ended. ask you about that. It ended it in May. All the predictions were that it would get worse. Um, and the numbers of unlaw- unlawful crossing, what's the correct terminology? Unlawful crossings? Yeah. Those numbers have come down quite a bit. Why? Why did it work? And is um, it still working? Uh, 65% um, drop in the number of individuals encountered at our southern border. Uh, I said since September of 21, with respect to the end of Title 42, this is what we do in the department. We plan and we execute the plan. And that is indeed what we have done. And we've done, and our plan is- I don't think is, I, what, what, why is it- Plan is twofold. Yeah. Ryan, on the one hand, we have, and this president has expanded uh, to an unprecedented level, the uh, number um, of opportunities that individuals have under the law to um, reach the United States in a safe and orderly way, lawful pathways. And we encourage those lawful pathways and we're building um, centers in different countries where people don't have to take that dangerous journey in the hands of smugglers. And so we're building those lawful pathways and people are using them. And then on the other hand, we are disincentivizing people from taking that irregular journey through in the hands messaging? of smugglers. Through public messaging through in public those countries? Mes- and also through the delivery of consequences if they don't avail themselves of the lawful pathways. What does that look like in practice? Okay. Like if I'm someone who is about who is desperate and was thinking about that journey, uh, what? how is it likely that I've changed my mind since May? So we now have opportunities for you um, where you don't have to place your life the life, the lives of your loved ones, your life savings in the hands of ruthless smugglers. We so we see so much tragedy and trauma along the migratory path. So we've built those lawful pathways. If you arrive in between the ports of entry, yeah, or at our southern border, without having taken advantage of those lawful pathways or satisfying other conditions, then you will have a higher evidentiary threshold to meet. You'll have a higher burden of proof to make your asylum claim. And if you do not succeed and you are removed, there's a an at least five-year bar to admission to the United States. Mm-hmm. So it's lawful pathways, consequence regime for not using them, and we've seen a dramatic drop. Were you even personally surprised that the predictions of a surge didn't come true? Uh, no, uh, I was not. And, and it's not as though we sprung this on May 11th. We've been working on this. We have such an incredibly talented and dedicated workforce. So I have complete confidence. The situation's dynamic. I want to be clear. Right. I was going to say, I mean, what do you you think? Are there estimates? Are there predictions about when things will could potentially um, surge. It, what do you watch to sort of understand w- where the flow is going? We, Ryan, it's interesting you ask. It's um, it's a really important question because we watch the flow of people around the hemisphere. I mentioned earlier this morning, um, 
in World War II, during World War II, there were 70 million displaced people in the world. There are 112 now. Hmm. Uh, we have seen a movement of people in our hemisphere from different countries uh, that is unprecedented. Unprecedented. You know, Venezuela is a country of about uh, 28 million people. More than 7 million have left. Wow. I think um, Colombia is hosting 2.5 million Venezuelans. So this it, is not something specific so, to the southern border. Yeah. So part of your job is like paying really, really close attention to political instability in every one of those countries that could create a potential flow. It is. It is. Is um, there anything? Migration your... is uh, by its nature an international phenomenon. I know you said you're an eternal optimist recently, but your optimism has been running out. Uh, I don't think anyone thinks there's a prospect to fix uh, our, our system to make it a little bit more, uh, maybe like the Canadian system you were discussing. Are there any Republicans on the Hill that you are in contact with regularly who you think want to um, uh, get an immigration proposal off the ground? Most certainly. Yeah. And Most certainly. Give us just a quick update on if, if you know, any glimmers of, of hope towards that. Anything? I, I, you know, I won't uh, speak of the individuals themselves, but uh, they are focused on fixing the asylum system. They're focused on fixing economic uh, immigration, different aspects of it, focused on dreamers. Yeah. But, it, 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 you know, this is, we've come close before. I mean, it was in the 90s. The last time our immigration system had any legislative action in well, the we, 90s. We're in 2023. The world has changed dramatically. Yeah. I mean, we came close and we one half of Congress passed something yeah. in, in, in the Obama administration. In, in, in a bipartisan but that created, effort. But that created, you know, a backlash just by passing it, right? They it, killed it in the other chamber. Immigration is a very um, controversial subject. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. All right, let's talk about the other stuff that you do. And give me a, give me a sort of, give, give listeners a sense of the percentage of time. You, the Department of Homeland Security, is it still the biggest department? The no, Pentagon is biggest. It's the third largest. It's Pentagon um, and? Pentagon and Veterans Affairs. Pentagon, oh, we Veterans we have the Department of Homeland Security yeah. is 260,000 people. Let me identify the eight agencies <laughs> that are in okay. the department just to give you a, a, a snapshot of the breadth of our work. I'll start with the immigration agencies or the enforcement agencies, Customs and Border Protection, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, FEMA, Coast Guard, TSA, Secret. Everyone's favorite. Um, TSA is doing a, a spectacular job. Uh, no, I don't, cyber I, don't, security, I don't want to ask you about TSA. Yeah, but you got cyber, cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the United States Secret Service. Those are the eight operational agencies. And of course, we have... 1415 other offices 
that are of incredible importance. Our policy officer, Office of Civil Rights, Civil Liberties, our Office of Intelligence and Analysis, and so on and so forth. Since we're here at the Aspen Security Forum, let's talk a little bit about how DHS, after 20 years, has changed when it comes to homeland security threats. Um, what is currently the most significant threat to the American homeland that we face? And um, how has it changed? Ryan, when you speak of the threat, are you speaking of the terrorism-related threat? Let's start with that. Thanks yeah. for, for clarifying. Yeah. So the terrorism threat has evolved. What we are very focused on, focused on every aspect of it, but what we've seen rise in prominence is the rise in domestic, what we call domestic violent extremism. Individuals radicalized to violence because of an ideology of hate, anti-government sentiment, uh, false narratives, personal grievances. False narratives, misinformation. Is that, misinformation, is that in that uh, bucket? Um, yes. And the ideologies run the gamut. They are not of one political stripe or another. Yeah. They run They run the gamut. Unpack that a little bit. How, how would you describe them? I mean, we spent, you know, uh, the last 20 years understanding the ideology that led to 9-11 and foreign all, terrorist ideology and all of its offshoots i don't think we talk as much about the details of the ideologies that you're talking about and it's it's more politically fraught in some ways because it's domestic it bleeds into legitimate protected uh speech uh, speech and ideologies but it's um, a really important point so how do you because, how do you describe it like because <laughs> you know we safeguard the first amendment we are one of the only departments that has a statutorily created Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, an Office of Privacy. And those are very important offices that have a seat at the leadership table in the Department of Homeland Security. We get involved not when an ideology is expressed, but when there's a connectivity to violence. Right. That's our involvement. Right. So if I'm out in the street with a sign um, expressing um, a violence, what's the, what's, the, what's the trigger, just so I understand, when, the, when speech becomes- let, let, let me, Yeah. 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 Um, because it's different. You have a yeah. sign. Yeah. And you say, save the animals. <laughs> yeah. And um, you have that uh, prerogative. When you have a sign that says, save the animals, and you've got a Molotov cocktail- uh, that's uh, ignited and you're about to throw it. Yeah. Um, we want to prevent that from materializing. Yeah, but, but even in that example, it's- That's a very, you know, yeah, I, but, I give a one that's just yeah. communicates the- But even with that example, point. it's it's really, um, it's far along the, the path to imminent violence, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, it, the sign doesn't matter at that point. The Molotov cocktail is sort so, of what matters. So this is, so let me- this is one area of our work, and it's very difficult. And what we what we do is we empower and equip communities to address this. If one takes a look at some of the more notorious events of violence, yeah. of violent extremism, yeah, whether it's the tragic uh, shooting in a supermarket in Buffalo, whether it's the horrific tragedy of Uvalde, yeah, uh, the shooting at the July Fourth parade in Highland Park, those three, the recent um, uh, attack in, in, in Philadelphia. 
the individuals exhibited signs right. of descending uh, down a path to violence. And we there learned are, that after the fact. Yes. And there are organizations, nonprofit organizations, social service organizations uh, in communities that are doing really important work uh, to build prevention models. Those so, are DHS entities? No, th those, those are, are like local. Non local those nonprofit, are lo yeah. Lo local and, um, and there are academic institutions uh, that are studying this. And, you know, how do we educate um, parents, neighbors, teachers, yeah. faith leaders to recognize when somebody is descending down that path to violence? Yeah. Whether they're articulating intent to commit violent acts or what have you. And how do we enable them to seek help? Because it's not accountability. That's too late. We're trying to build prevention models and Congress has appropriated funds for a grant program so that we can fund some of these organizations as they build best practices. Just so I understand the difference between domestic terrorism and foreign terrorism, the, the red lines that we talked about, you know, obviously protecting speech, what would be the difference when you're looking at a foreign threat in terms of um, the, the, those same triggers? It's, it's something that you don't have to worry about at all. It's really, it's really, the, it's really the, the same core principle, that the, the, the geography of the individual but if it's a far if it's a foreigner who's talking about blowing stuff up in the United States, but hasn't, um, we don't have this. And just so I understand, we don't have the same. Uh, the First Amendment doesn't extend to a foreign national potential uh, uh, terrorist. We work very closely. Right? We work uh, very closely uh, with our foreign partners who bring information not only to the Department of Homeland Security but to the FBI to. Um, federal agencies' attention when they they detect a threat yeah. to our security and we share information with them. Um, the landscape is an international one and international information sharing agreements are so vitally important. Two questions about foreign policy and national security and, and your job. The first is related to what you just said, and this is also related to Congress. A lot of the discussion, I don't think it's taken place too much on stage here in Aspen, but a lot of privately, what a lot of Biden administration officials have been talking to us in the, in the press about is reauthorization of 702, yeah. which is one of the tools that has been so important to, to uh, DHS for, for, for many years. Is there anything, is that um, part of your portfolio to sort of help get that passed? Do you have any thoughts about how important it is? Or is that I more do. We, we, we Justice do. Department? Okay. We, we do um, express our, uh, our voice with respect to the incredible importance of 702. Um, the ability to learn information to safeguard the homeland. It is of vital importance. I've spoken with Director Ray about this and with many others. Do you anticipate that it'll be reauthorized this year? I am very hopeful. Um, it needs to be, absolutely. Does it need to be reformed? Um, that I cannot uh, uh, speak to. I think there are some misperceptions 
of its uh, use. The other issue that is dominates this conference is, of course, China and to maybe a little bit of lesser extent, Russia. As we've sort of moving from a, a foreign policy an era dominated by um, foreign terrorism to maybe a little bit of a return to sort of great power competition, where does DHS fit in in, in, in that world? So let me, um, Ryan, first of all, the, the foreign terrorist uh, threat because it hasn't materialized. Yeah, and we haven't quantified it. We because talked it about hasn't materialized so doesn't us, mean yeah. we don't it, yeah. so give us um, to, keep our focus on it. Right. There was a and one attack, a, and, and, and our entire minds will be changed about this issue. That's right. And yep. and um, the FBI just arrested a 17 year old who was a radicalized um, uh, to ISIS. Um, you know, we deal with uh, China in a number of different areas of concern. Uh, we also touch with the State Department uh, the very important um, movement of people, f- lawful movement of people between our two countries. Yeah, um, the United States companies, uh, many of them do an enormous amount of business uh, in China, and so the dialogue that has commenced is uh, uh, very positive. Um, we deal with a number of problems: the forced labor. Um, the exploitation, the inhumane exploitation of Uyghurs. We enforce the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act. And the, that's what, cracking down on U.S. companies we, that we will, violate it? We do, not, we do not allow goods produced in whole or in part with forced labor to enter the United States. Um, and that's a very important law that Congress passed. We have the challenge of uh, fentanyl precursor chemicals and pill presses emanating from China, traveling to Mexico, and we find the deadly drug coming in through the ports of entry in our country. I want to talk we some have, more about fentanyl. We have, we have cyber, the cyber challenge, the the, um, the threat of um, intellectual property theft, counterfeit counterfeit goods, uh, uh, other uh, IP uh, intellectual property theft. Um, Which is are amazing now. The the, the <laughs> I know people in the fashion world who talk about the like super fakes that are coming out, out of China. That's part of DHS is like making sure that those, you know, Louis Vuitton bags. So, so, <laughs> so we we uh, our Homeland Security investigations, along with Customs and Border Protection, CBP interdicts uh, Homeland Security investigations. Uh, one of the premier criminal investigative agencies. Um, uh, as an element of it that focuses on intellectual property rights. Tell us a little bit about fentanyl. I, I, I imagine like a lot of people, maybe that's not an issue that you were an expert on when you went, when you started, before you well, started this job. Maybe, well, maybe I'm wrong about that, but give, give us an indication of the severity of that and why China hasn't ratcheted back. Are they- is So it, there it, I, I won't speculate, but okay. we're hopeful that changes. You know, the fentanyl, um, the scourge of fentanyl, the devastation of fentanyl has uh, been increasing year over year for five years or more. Uh, you know, I think it was in 2020 that there were uh, over 55,000 deaths of Americans at, at the hands of fentanyl. Uh, I prosecuted many drug trafficking cases when I was a federal prosecutor. So you saw that, you did see that, yeah. Yeah, as, as and, and, I, and I, so I do have uh, a great deal of knowledge in um, how to address it. The, the, what 
differentiates fentanyl, Ryan, is its extraordinary toxicity. Yeah. The ease of manufacture, the margin of profitability, the ease of concealment. It is a, an extraordinary challenge. We have to tackle this as a country, a united country, to address the supply side and the demand side. And we have been surging resources, Customs and Border Protection and Homeland Security investigations to investigate the organ cartels that traffic in this death uh, and to interdict the supplies and the finished product at our ports of entry and through other means. Do you think that China is using this as leverage? I won't, um, I don't want to speculate, I don't want to speculate, but we, we um, are intent on making progress. Um, I want to talk a little bit about TSA, just because yeah. so many people, exp that's the, the level at which so most Americans experience your, your department. We, we interact with the American public on a daily basis more than any other department. <laughs> that includes, and, but is not exclusive to TSA. Um, are we ever going to leave the era of the current TSA security regime behind? Is there any future in which American airports are easier to get, to, to get through? I'm sure you people, this is, do people ask you this all the time when they learn that you're in charge of TSA? Uh, well, uh, I get asked uh, with uh, with frequency, but let me let me break it down a little bit. Right. Let me first ask you this question: When you enter the airport and you go through the process, yeah, to board your flight, um, my cortisol are, levels are already are, like are, I, are I'm you, just thinking about it. Are you um, are you focused on the convenience of the um, travel, or are you focused on the security? Are you worried about me security? personally? Are you worried Convenience, about- Convenience, 100%. What's that? <laughs> Convenience. I'm not worried about the security that because I think you guys have a, it taken care, of, taken care of. That is a an amazing right. I'm not evolution. Scared to, I'm not scared to fly. Nobody is scared to fly. Thank you, TSA. <laughs> Fair. Thank you, TSA. Yeah. I will say this. Do you have pre-check? Yes. Makes it better. Much better. I got pre-check. I got clear. You guys know everything about me. Okay. So the airport experience- Yeah. TSA is an important element of it. The airport is an important element of it. The design and configuration of the airport. Yeah. And the airlines and the the flight patterns the and the like it's a it's a mosaic and our airports need to be modernized. Yeah, is there a future where it's just where it's we we it's work less we work closely with airports as they redesign or new airports as they are developed, LaGuardia, you know, LA, uh, LAX is, is being redesigned uh, in anticipation of the 2028 Olympics. We work together because it's an, it's an ecosystem. Um, and we are working on the Trusted Traveler Program 2.0. That's pre-check and global entry. So we're, we're modernizing. All right. I've got, I've got, if I've got global entry, pre-check and clear, I've got everything. Is there anything you else? Be, you should be set. Um, <laughs> uh, but more to come. Do you use when you travel internationally, do you use the automated passport controls, the APCs, where you show your passport and boom? You put it on forward? the little scanner. Yeah. 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 Well, some foreign countries are better than others at, at implementing that. Correct. Progress. Yeah. yeah. Some of the Italian airports I've been to recently, uh, you know, there's some issues. 
Quickly on cyber, there was a pretty major breach recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think I totally understand exactly the, the what how they uh, messed with the with the Microsoft login, but it seems yeah. like it was a a Microsoft problem. Is there anything you can tell us about that breach, why it happened, and um, what we're going to do a, about it's it? It's a little. It's unclear how it happened, how the theft occurred. Uh, I will say this: we work very closely with Microsoft on cybersecurity. We work with other companies as well. Um, our cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, CISA, as it is known, its model is a public-private partnership. And an example of that partnership in action is in response to this and in response to much work that precedes this event. Microsoft and CISA announced yesterday a new logging relationship uh, that will really uh, help secure um, our environment. You know, one question on cyber, um, is it an exaggerated threat? No. I mean, the Russians could barely, I mean, in terms of their cyber capability with Ukraine, it hasn't been very impressive. Well, well so a so, couple things. Yeah, so but, yeah. That to me made me the think. Cyber threat yeah. is enormous. It is enormous. And it's enormous with respect to adverse nation states. And it's enormous with respect to cyber criminals. I mean, and let me let me bring it uh, to life. First of all, with respect to Ukraine, Russia has done damage, but Ukraine has demonstrated cyber resiliency, and that resiliency is not the product of a snap of the fingers. We help. That's Ukraine and the United States and other countries working to build defenses. Let me bring the the challenge to life in terms of its enormity, um, ransomware, uh, locking people out of a system in exchange for a ransom. We've seen in the Midwest, and I'll just cite one example, a hospital whose critical care unit was rendered inoperable hmm. in a ransomware attack. And people in emergency care had to be evacuated to another facility to receive that care. I would submit that the patients, their loved ones, and all hospital personnel and people in the community considered that an enormous yeah. threat. Karmically, I'm now going to get hit with a phishing attack as I asked that question. Don't about click. The threat being exaggerated. Don't <laughs> click on a link you don't recognize. And watch that link really carefully. If you oh. see one digit, I erase, uh, yeah, yeah. I erase half my email because yeah. I, you know. Um, no wonder I haven't heard from you. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> um, let, let, last, last question, which is more personal about what it has been like to be in the sort of meat grinder of DC politics. Uh, a mutual uh, acquaintance of ours, when I was telling them that I was going to be interviewing today, you know, said in conversations this person had with you before you joined the administration. It was like, you know, Mayorkas, he's the, the most centrist, maybe conservative member of the of the Biden cabinet. And it must just be kind of disorienting for him to be the poster child for the right of the person that Republicans want to impeach, the, the, the person that when you go up to, to these hearings, they, they say some pretty harsh um, personal things. What has... You know, forget about some of the the, the politics and, and the policy. What has that been like personally 
for you. I imagine your self-conception and your self-identity when you came in was a, as a certain type of figure who cares about the country, who cares about security, had certain views of immigration that may have departed with some people on the left in the Democratic Party. And then suddenly you're being accused of pretty awful things, most recently dereliction of duty. Now, you're going to go through some you know, hearings in the coming weeks. We'll watch those carefully. Coming up this week. On the, on the, 20, week. On the 26th. Yep. What has it been like personally to sort of go through that experience? Ryan, um, let, me, let, me, let me say this. You know, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm in my 22nd or 23rd year of federal service. I am incredibly proud of my record in federal service, and I love serving our country. This country uh, gave my family, including me, a new life. We fled the communist takeover of Cuba. Um, and it's a tremendous source of pride for me to have served our country and to continue serving our country. And I have so much admiration and gratitude for the people with whom I work. I have a very good understanding of who I am and what I am trying to do for our country in leading 260,000 people in the Department of Homeland Security. False accusations do not dent that one bit. Thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thank you to Joe Dopkin for the editing help this week. Thanks also to Mark Meeker and Mad Dog Ranch Studios for field production in Aspen. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>